Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to week four of Alfred Hitchcock uh, Discovered. I don't know. I keep making up random terms at the beginning of this episode. Uh, covering the 1960s of Alfred Hitchcock and, of course, uh, one of his more famous films, Psycho. I am here. Uh, my co-host, Zach, is here. How are you doing, Zach? I am doing wonderful. I'm doing so much different than our last episode because it's been um, two weeks, of course. Yeah, we... Uh, we yeah. <laughs> and more importantly, we have a wonderful guest here. Caleb Bowman is here. He loves Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, I am. Uh, I, I'm a big Alfred Hitchcock fan, actually. Because, um, so, like, he was, like, one of the first directors that actually went through, like, uh, a good chunk of his filmography because, basically, I was like, okay. I Because, I like, the first movie that, like, made me obsessed with movies was, like, Inception. So, and that kind of made me obsessed with, with Nolan and going through, like, his filmography. So I was like, okay, I need to do this with another director. And I, like, had watched a couple other, like, big directors. But I was like, you know, everyone talks about Hitchcock. I'm going to get this five-pack of Hitchcock, which I still have, that has Psycho, Rear Window, Vertigo, The Birds, and North by Northwest on it, which like five of his best. Uh, and I watched through all of them. And uh, yeah, uh, he he's great. And I've of course watched more since, but he he's fantastic. And he really was kind of of that era, such a defining filmmaker. Um, but yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to talk about Psycho because that was kind of the, you know, that that's the iconic one. You know, that's the one that everybody talks about. But I feel like to the point it's become so iconic that people kind of forget that it's also just, really good like it's legitimately kind of i feel like some iconic movies are oh yeah they're iconic but they don't have that like special psycho is just really good it's so just watchable psycho is one of those movies that i think we just you know we've just come off october and people talk about their what their favorite horror movies are and i think people forget how like legitimately amazing psycho is and how much it should be in contention for either your number one or your top five of all time and how everyone should be thinking about, man, there are so many movies that just copy Psycho for scares, for plot, for basic substance. And like, it doesn't surprise me at all that you went from Nolan to Hitchcock because there are some clear, um, some clear like mind games and like pattern mystery solving that exists in Nolan that um, I think he was clearly also um, influenced by Hitchcock, another Brit and another like famous director. Stuff. You know, especially oh, in the early Nolan stuff. You know, Memento, Insomnia, Insomnia. following, mm. like, those even, I'd even say Prestige, even though that gets into more of the sci-fi fantasy elements. I say all those feel like very, very Hitchcockian. Absolutely. Um, let us I start the episode. Even his, 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 more, thank you for coming up. Even his more elaborate ones, like Inception, <laughs> still has a lot. Oh, as much as like everything he shows has a purpose, or will come back, is still owed to no Hitchcock. So That's now true. you may continue, sir. Absolutely. Uh, let's continue on to our last Letterbox movie. Uh, Zach Ford, what's the last movie you logged on Letterbox? Hey, um, it's a masterpiece called Lady Hawk. Uh, this is a Richard Donner movie from 1985. I am. Now, going through 1985 movies, I don't know if I have talked about any of them yet. Um, this one sucks. Uh, <laughs> this is like Matthew Broderick, real miscasted as this kind of like sneaky medieval times, you know, criminal that like escapes to help Rucker Hauer, who used to be, um, it's not like a knight, they have different, he was a general. 
and and the army. Um, but uh, he, there's a mystery because he disappears every night, and then this woman appears all the time. There's a hawk and there's a wolf. You can connect the dots. It's the plot of the movie. Um, anyways, Michelle Pfeiffer's in it. She's kind of wasted. Rucker Harris a lot better in Flesh and Blood from the same movie because he gets to be a little, um, you know, scurvier. I don't think it's a real adjective to describe a person, but I'm going to describe him as scurvy um, in, in Flesh and Blood, which is how Rucker Harris should be. He's kind of dolled out in um, Lady Hawk. Um, the best thing about the movie is the name. Um, also, like, one of the worst scores that have ever been created. Really, anything in the 80s, you just put in one thing, it's all the worst score that's ever been created. But it's, like, Alan Parsons um, doing this, like, weird electronic rock score, and it's supposed to be, like, medieval times, and there's, like, nights fighting, and it's, um, it's really horrible. <laughs> so, that's my opinion on Richard Donner's Lady Hawk. All right. I have uh, not seen this. Have you seen this, Mr. Goldman? I have not seen this movie. But my dad loves this movie. My dad loves this movie, but for the longest time, he could not remember what it was called, so he couldn't watch it. But he's like, it's that movie where, like, you know, the 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 guy turns into a wolf and the woman turns into like a bird. Hey, I I didn't tell the audience that you just spoiled the movie. <laughs> I thought that was legitimately the plot of the movie. It is the plot of the movie. (laughs) You're fine. Oh, but like my dad could never remember what the name of that movie was. Uh, And eventually I was like, is it this? And he was like, yes, that's it. And we still haven't watched it. And based on the fact that Zach didn't like it, I don't know if I will, but I feel like at this point I have to watch it just because I went on a journey with this movie. That is the ultimate, like, dad's favorite movie, the movie he can't remember the title, and everybody else thinks is shit. But, like, he just has this snapshot of, like, 1985, watching it with a friend, and then he thinks it's the best movie of all time based (laughs) on something he thought, you know, 20, 30 years ago. There was nothing worse than re-watching Star Trek The Motion Picture with my dad. Oh, Lord. Because that was a movie that when he saw it in 1979... He loved my dad. Well, because it was cool visually and he was a star. That's fair. That's fair. And he had not watched it since. Oh, God. And he was so distraught that it wasn't as good as he remembered. Like, everyone had is real boring. And when, as you get older, everyone has these experiences. This is, has been my experience with the um, legendary Harry Mandel vehicle, Little Monsters. <laughs> Little Monsters, I was like obsessed with as a kid. Like me and my brother would quote it. And like we became Talking Heads fans because they play a Talking Heads song at the end of Little Monsters. Um, and that movie is obnoxious. If you watch it as an adult, it is like going at 150 miles per hour and is only for eight-year-olds. Absolutely. Are you uh, saying that Fred Savage is filmography <laughs> is not like immaculate? Yeah, I mean it's only one um, dark spot on Ben Savage's um, filmography, but Fred Savage uh, overrated. You're not wrong. Get a pop in the Wizard on a Monday night. Let's be honest here. Ooh, Mr. Boatman, what's the last movie you logged on Letterboxd? Uh, this was a movie uh, I watched. Uh, it was a rewatch. Uh, it was partially for studying purposes for Full Metal, partially because I just wanted to watch it because I love this movie. Uh, it was the Blues Brothers. Ooh. Uh, uh, this is a movie that I just, 
I cannot watch without a smile on my face. It's such a delight. Like all the musical numbers are just so fun. Um, and I love the kind of straight face silliness that Dan Aykroyd and Belushi have with each other. Uh, they're really great. And that movie, it like the cast is so like perfect. Cause you have like obviously all the, like the the music legends like Cab Calloway and James Brown and Aretha Franklin. Uh, but you also have uh, like John Candy in there for like two seconds and you have Carrie Fisher. It's the cast is great and the music is just, it, it's fantastic. Dan Ackford and John Belushi are not like technically great singers, but mm -hmm. they have the confidence that they sell it and they make you believe that they're great singers in the moment. Yeah, no, and it's like, it's kind of the classic, like if you can get two people who are engaging, who are willing to just be convinced of their own talent, you can kind of pull it off. It makes, it reminds me of like, like a Rex Harrison from the sixties, which is like, he's not a technically good singer, but he is so proficient in the moment that he fools you into believing that he is doing the job the way you should be, the way he's capable of. I mean, honestly, that is what blues is. Blues is all about like passion and all the greatest singers, but if you feel their passion, their emotion, that's where the greatness comes from. Um, so I have Zach not Zach just said that Aretha Franklin is not a technically good singer. So um, we will now get the Aretha dance attack. R&B singer, let's get this together. Okay. Um, <laughs> Anyways, I have not seen Blues Brothers, but I definitely for a long portion of my time, I thought I saw Blues Brothers and had to realize I actually just saw the Blues Brothers show at Universal Studios, and they're not the same thing. So I have not seen the movie. I like the movie. The movie's really good. It's a fun movie. Um, the last movie I watched in Letterboxd was also a rewatch of a movie that I saw a while ago as a kid. And I think that... Um, Is it The Dictator? I, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it's a movie that I saw as a kid and thought was funny, but then I don't think grasped the greater like um, commentary the film is making, which is, of course, uh, the Jedi Patel vehicle knocked up, um, which I think has a lot more going on in it than I originally thought. Because I think I, the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, it's funny and there's some good moments. But there's a lot of um, commentary about um, relationships, you know, the chaotic relationship between... Um, the main couple and you know just the random pregnancy and then the sort of interesting twisted and sort of failing relationship between the older couple and i think this movie actually has a lot to say even about um families and about uh what you pass on to your kids and you know there's a lot of discussion between like friends about how they feel in moments and how couples are affected and how your father's um style of parenting affects you as a kid and i think this movie is not only very funny but also has a lot to say so I think in rewatch, uh, I got a lot more out of it. So um, I'm really glad I decided to randomly, randomly realize that uh, Hulu now has knocked up. And so that was a, a fun rewatch. Yeah, it's one of my favorite movies. And I watched it a month before my son was born and I bawled my eyes out <laughs> in preparation of what's happening. But, and also one of the best father-son movies in any scenes um, with Harold Ramis. Um, Gain, you just one of the best single scene performances in a movie to me. Um, really delivering some heart while delivering the last at the same time. I have never actually seen Knocked Up. Uh, really? I've never seen it. Uh, it's it's just one of those ones that like, I never really got around. A lot of that, like that specific era of like the Apatow comedy, mm -hmm. I've never mm -hmm. really been like super interested in like some of the adam mckay stuff i i really like but like that era i i do really like the 40 year old virgin so i might like knocked up 
Uh, but like that Very era, I just kind mm. of have this like less than great feeling of it. Cause I do think as we went into the 2010s, that era kind of poisoned the modern comedy in a sense that like everything became so heavily improvised. And it was mm. not these kind of movies that weren't really all that funny, but it was these kind of just scenes that were, you know, somewhat funny, that they had enough funny stuff for the trailers and the rest of it was just kind of a bunch of people basically all talking over each other, just look at me, look at me, look at me. And they're not really movies, they're lightly edited improv. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that the Apatow era, even though they technically do like the best versions of it, they kind of started the trend. Kind of, so I have a, a bit of a bias Towards those type of movies, but I've been meaning to like get to not get them. Yeah, I feel very personally attacked uh, because the talking over people look at me, look at me is how I left my life. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think you make a good point, which is that they did all these. Let's really commit to characters, or let's do these improv movies, and then a lot of people tried to copy them, and. Um, it, for like varying levels of success, and I think there was in some ways a real boom of comedy in the early, of the early two thousands, and it hit some really rough year. There are some really rough years in there, later two thousands, twenty tens, where it's like, wow, they made ten really big studio comedies, and all of them are terrible. So yeah, it definitely did have a, a effect on the on the genre, and um, not always for the best. Yeah, it feels like the main like the mainstream studio comedy has kind of died out a little bit. A lot of the ones that do come out are either not very good or not very well seen. Uh, like yeah. I, I feel like in general, like when people talk about like the best comedies of like the last ten years, they don't normally bring up like the mainstream studio ones. It's generally like smaller independent stuff, like what we mm -hmm. do in Shadows or Booksmart, or it's movies that aren't really even technically comedies, like Thor Ragnarok, or like you know stuff like that. So I, it kind of it's kind of weird that comedy as like a mainstream genre has almost like died out and hopefully it'll kind of like in the main studio sense they're all Absolutely. comedies but like the main studio comedy has kind of not really been around and when it has it's not been great i think the last like great main studio comedy was maybe game night that whole year was a pretty solid year because they had blockers as well which which had a lot of fans and I like, um, I feel like there's one I'm forgetting that I didn't like as much, but also Tag is night. underrated. I really, was Girls Night that same year, Girls Night, and I, I like Tag a lot. I think yeah, when I think of the... Like usually I, one a year, you can count. I think, honestly, if you think of the big studio comedies for that era, the ones from the 2010s that really pop are Jump Street and Neighbors. And I think those are the two big ones that and pop Brides for success. Bridesmaids, yeah. Yeah, and then um, maybe like Spy, and you could make an argument for Bad Moms okay, because right. um, those kind of popped a no, lot. Yes. They, okay, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue. <laughs> they, they, quality, were very, they, they, they were very them. popular. They were very very popular. But yeah, no, it is it is definitely um, a, a long time from the era of a Step Brothers and an Anchorman and a Forty Eight Virgin and a Hangover coming out every single year in succession. And like kind of we had Pineapple Express, Tropic Thunder, and Step Brothers all in the same year. Like Absolutely. now it feels like we get one of, maybe one of those each year. It, all those movies happened right before the superhero, you know, explosion. And it's just, I think, companies' goals um, have 
changed and veered towards these more franchise um, and, you know, branding um, kind of movies and, and comedies, you know, are not as easy extended, especially since comedies since the dawn of time have a bad history of sequels and they want movies that are going to produce, you know, successful sequel after sequel. Um, not going to put a lot of money and time towards a one and done good comedy, especially when they can spend a lot less like they do can on books or something else and be equally successful. So the big budget ones are just not going to exist at this point. That's, that's fair. And that also reminds me of like the fact that like the medium budget movie kind of doesn't exist anymore. Most movies are either films or they're like small independent films. Cause basically a studio can only justify either a small budget, like, that they can basically, they don't risk anything or a giant budget, which is gonna have a giant taken. Uh, but like these medium budget films don't really exist anymore. And I think that has kind of hurt the comedy, uh, the mainstream studio comedy that probably why we see less of them in general. We have also the, st the stars for your mainstream comedies from the 2000s don't work that much anymore. Will Ferrell doesn't work that much anymore. Um, the guys from The Hangover either do not work or have moved on to different genres. A Vince Vaughn doesn't really make comedies anymore. Uh, Adam Sandler went to Netflix for a while. Um, like these, They kind of disappeared off the playing field. So in some ways it makes sense. Either they were driven off the playing field because the studios weren't going to spend on the comedies, or they just kind of disappeared and the studios were stuck sitting there going, man, we really need to make Melissa McCarthy and Kevin Hart a thing because they're the only people we have. We don't really yeah, have Kevin Hart and Seth Rogen. We don't really but have any. Rogan disappeared too. Rogan really disappeared. Rogan does like a movie every two to three years. He's had American Pickle. He had Long Shot last year. He's making movies. I'm not saying he's not he making movies. I'm saying he doesn't, he's not popping in every single year with a new comedy like he used to. He's taking and a break. We don't have like the new like main talent. Yeah. You know, like we have like Melissa McCarthy, Kevin Hart, but they can't sell a movie like a Will Ferrell or a Seth Rogen or a Ben Stiller. Like they don't, I don't think Melissa McCarthy necessarily, maybe you could argue Melissa McCarthy. Maybe, I probably would not say Kevin Hart from a movie level. Maybe, well, maybe you can argue they can sell a movie, but I think they don't have like their films at least don't have like that kind of lovability of like the, the, a lot of the Will Ferrell films or the Jim Car that Jim Carrey was to the nineties or that Ben Stiller kind of was to the early two thousands. Like we don't really have someone with a career like that where they have like those giant, like just hit beloved movies coming out like one after other, after other. Yeah. Really I mean, there's, there's no one for the next generation. Who's yeah. the top comedy star under the age of 35. It, well, all I mean, our favorite comedy stars are over 40. A couple <laughs> years ago, I mean, think yeah. of how hard they tried to make Tiffany Haddish a thing. They mm -hmm. pushed her so hard for like two years, and she basically made one really good movie, and basically nothing else she did hit. Exactly. And even with, even with like Kevin Hart, Kevin Hart basically has a career because they put him in movies with The Rock. Yeah. Like half and of they, his success, his biggest successes are, hey, we put you in a comedy with the world's biggest action star. Mm -hmm. They in a way are doing the same thing with Kamel Nanjani. Once he had success with Big um, Big Sick, then they throw him into movies that just kind of bombed, not getting the right properties to yeah. do his thing. It kind of wasn't even his voice, and that's the, I think really what you need to do with the comic actor to say is let them express their voice. Don't put them in something that they don't fit in. That's They've true. I mean, doing that with like a lot of like SNL people, like Kate McKinnon, put into a yeah. lot of things, 
but they just kind of tell her, oh, Kate McKinnon, you're funny on SNL. Funny, quirky, and show up. But, like, they haven't given her a character that she can really shine with. Like, nothing on the level of, like, a Frank the Tank Evans from old school that let Will Ferrell kind of bust open the doors and introduce himself to the world. Or, like, you know, uh, Vince Vaughn with Swingers. Or, like, Ben Stiller something about Mary. Like, we don't have those, like, giant star-making performances, like, that are beloved in terms of comedy. I think the last real one was maybe Melissa McCarthy and Bridesmaids. Yeah, yeah. But then Melissa McCarthy, the problem with Melissa McCarthy is they just had her play that same character yeah. in the next seven movies. Because mm-hmm. if you go back, I mean, Will Ferrell is kind of a really example of this, where you let him do Frank the Tank, and then you let him do Anchorman, and those are completely different characters, but he has a whole built, fully formed character that he's committed to, and then he does stuff like Step Brothers, and it's a completely different character that he's allowed to build around and fully commit to. And I think one thing you see more than anything is he has a lot of control over those movies. He is writing them. He is working alongside Adam McKay. Adam McKay is his director that he is working with to figure out how to do those movies. He's putting his people around him. I mean, I think that's the one thing now is those the stars just don't have the, the power anymore to kind of dictate I, the writing and direction in the way they did. So that it's not a Will Ferrell movie anymore. Like Will Ferrell movies doesn't exist. You're not getting the Tiffany Haddish movie. You're getting Tiffany Haddish in the movie directed by the studio person, written by the studio person. I think Melissa McCarthy had plenty of a successful career up to this point, though. I think her main issue, why she wasn't as consistent, like she worked really well with Paul Feig and outside of that, was nepotism. She just wanted yeah. to work with her husband all the time and <laughs> they didn't really have the you know quality or ability to... Let's just say it. Her, 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 their collaboration is was bad for her career. It was yes, bad it was. for her career. None of the three, because they did three movies, hey, right? I like the one. People, the Boss and... Life did. of the Party is pretty yeah, good. This party's okay. I like it. Life of the Party like most of America. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that a lot of hey. people at some point gave up on Mr. McCarthy. People sold their <laughs> Melissa McCarthy stock at some point. Because yeah. they were like, I've watched 10 bad movies after Bridesmaid. Why are gonna, Why am I going to keep I think back? The Boss is really what killed it. Like, that's... Um, still kind of saw and like eh, we're done i'm going to convince boatman to watch life of the party because um gillian jacobs has a great bit throughout the whole movie and she's the best part of the movie i'm aware that brita community (laughs) is in the film and i will admit that's the main reason i would ever that's part okay she's actually good in it there's a chance i might watch (laughs) just like wait till a day you're kind of bored and just want to waste some time and then you want to play with the party. <laughs> it's, I find it a very watchable movie. Like, it's not good, but it's, like, pleasant to have on the background. It's it's a pretty nice movie, and that's just... See, this nice is the problem with trivia. I don't get to just have a movie, like, late to the party. If I'm watching a late to the party, I'm watching it because, like, it's someone's strength. Like, mm. I have to basically buy the movies that I watch for me. Because, like, everything else, like, I don't get to watch a lot of movies just because I want to. So the ones I do, I'm very, like, careful about what I pick. Okay. Next time I'll play you, I'll pick old people going to college as my strength. Okay. <laughs> I've been old. Back to school. Old school. Um, back to okay, school. Let's not spend a half hour naming all old people. Does accepted count? No, they were younger. They were younger. Oh they, they're not old people. No. 
Um, I did not know we were going to delve into the entire discussion of the 20, 2000s and 2010s comedy scene, but this was fantastic. Um, let us continue on our discussion of our main film, Psycho. And of course, the only way to start um, a discussion of Psycho after talking about comedies for 25 minutes is for Zach Ford to give us his Psycho plot summary. Yeah, so uh, Psycho takes place in Phoenix, Arizona. I definitely did not Wikipedia that. Uh, <laughs> it, um, so it starts off with some lovemaking, post-lovemaking, very uh, sexy scene for 1960. Um, and they, the the male character, that's his name, the male character, Mr. Handsome. Says, okay, okay, okay. We have, have to, we have to cut in. His name is Sam Loomis. No, they okay. duplicate his name for the film Halloween. So he yeah. is somewhat somewhat of a famous name. And they also have the last name Billy Loomis for Green. Right, yeah, of course. Right. It's, it's so, yeah, but this character is not important. Why did they take his name? Okay. Sammy Loomis. It's a fun homage. Um, I'm going to use character names as my for the next time I play Zach Ford. Stop, stop. <laughs> Sam Loomis and Marion Crane are having so, some sexy time. Um, and Sa Sammy says, hey, like, I want to be together, but I don't have enough money for us to do it. So Marion decides to go and take money from her boss that she was supposed to put into the bank. And she runs away and she stares a lot inside of a car while hearing her own voice um, create the suspicion of everything around her is is, is going to catch her. Everyone's aware. Uh, so she ends up at um, a beautiful hotel called the Bates Motel. Please stay there on your next visit. We are sponsored by the Bates Motel. Um, and she, she meets a, a lovely, um, young, charming, if not kind of nervous, um, shy um, a man named Norman Bates. I was really worried I was going to forget that name. <laughs> and um, he, he talked, they have a great conversation. It's my favorite scene in the movie. We'll talk about, uh, he talks about his love with taxidermy, just like me, an amateur taxidermist, um, which is not creepy at all. And um, he talks about, or she witnesses him fighting with his mother in the uh, no, house across from the motel, um, who is the owner of the motel, his mom. Um, and Later in night, when she is taking a shower, you get wow, wow, wow. Um, you get a lot of quick flashes of faces in water, and um, she she dies from knife wounds in the shower. Mystery awaits. Her sister appears. The whole there's a whole new main character. Um, her sister on the other crane, um, Lillian Crane. No, Lila. Lila, I was so close. Okay, Lila Crane. Um, her and Mister Handsome um, meet up with a detective. And who is, or not, he's a private detective hired by the um, her company, boss. That, her boss that, that stole the money to find the stolen money. So they track it down to the hotel. There's a lot of fishy things happening. Um, he goes back to, you know, visit and see if they can find it. He makes the mistake of walking into the Bates house. Um, and then he gets pushed down the stairs by a feminine character. Um, it's a lot of great, like, Motion happening down. It's real dizzy. Um, it's a good low action scene for an old movie. Um, and then Mr. Handsome and Lila Crane, you know, have to go find a detective. Uh, there's like other people than me. I don't know. They like go to church for some reason. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're missing some important parts. Right now. They go to church. Uh, anyway, I love local this over a lot. 
But like he doesn't <laughs> point out that they go to church. Right. But just that they go to church, not why they go to church, which I is the important part of the well, story. So we're talking to like the sheriff. That's correct. Go continue. Okay. And he says that, you know, the mom's been dead forever. Um, she's never alive. <laughs> and so they go to investigate because there's so much suspicion and they go into the house. Um and, and Mr. Handsome and Norman Bates, you know, get into a tussle and he kind of knocks him down for a little bit and he goes to find Lila Crane. And then Mr. Hanson comes from nowhere and saves the day. He was a hero all along. That's what this movie's about, is great male heroism. Um, uh, the important, important part, the mom's corpse is the thing that Lila finds and oh, has yeah. to be rescued from. That's like, you know, an important yeah. uh, component That's of this. That's the second sexiest scene of the movie. When he also, um, the mom was dead for like 10 years, not forever, because if she was dead forever, then Norman would not exist because he would not have a mother. I don't like this new section where you correct everything I do in the plot. <laughs> this is not part of our show. This is not in the outline. Um, anyways, they the last five minutes or ten minutes or hour of the movie, it goes for a while, um, is when they are trying to investigate Norman Bates and they're like, there is no Norman Bates. He has turned to his mom and they um, very sloppily um, teach us all about psychology and mental health disorders. Um, for the end, I actually kind of like that scene because I, I can excuse it for, you know, it, it's it's mistakes of the time. Um, Do you know why that scene is in the film, though? Because people were too confused, I thought. No, it's set, it was to stop censorship. So yeah. the only way they could put all the stuff in the movie was if they had that final scene where a psychologist explained Norman's behavior. Because I guess under film code at that time you had to explain or punish the bad people in your films yeah otherwise they would like give you a rating that would make it um not viewable to most people okay i i assume because there is you know not a great understanding of you know psychology at that time that they probably just need to explain or else people would be real confused about who this guy was okay i have to say the first time i ever saw this movie was late at night. I was a teenager, and I made the mistake of trying to take a shower directly after finishing this movie, which was a terrible Did idea. No, I'm still alive, but um, I definitely was way too jumpy every time, like the shower made a hard, weird noise or something. Um, it was a it was a poor choice on my part. It did kind of ruin. It did for showers? hours what Jaws did for the ocean. If we're really, yeah. if we're being serious, like. And it yeah. was before Jaws. Like, Psycho kind of ruined showers. Um, I mean, thanks for giving me an excuse to only shower once every four days. I'll just tell you it's because I'm scared. Um, this sounds like a joke, but it is largely based in fact. Um, but there's still murder in my house. I've never been scared of showers. I didn't get that. I'm more scared of just, like, freaky weirdos rather than someone attacking me in the shower. Lock your bathroom door is like a normal person. I'm not showering in like an open area. It was still <laughs> disturbing watching this film. Um, this movie is obviously very influential. It is sort of um, in some ways considered one of the first or the first in the slasher genre. Um, as Zach was talking about the plot description, I realized that the kill of Arbogast really reminds me of the original of the initial the first kill in Texas Chainsaw Massacre where it's sort of an individual just walking up the stairway, walking in an area, and then villain pops out and just takes them out. 
And I think in some ways, I do wonder if uh, that was a little bit of an homage or at least um, an influence when that was being made. Yeah, there's definitely a, a much more focus on like the misery of the person being attacked rather than the actual attack themselves because it is so quick and abrupt. And I think that's what's scary. It just kind of comes and happens. And you just watch the person because you're seeing often the you know, perspective of the murderer, more or less, watching the person they're torturing or killing, you know, rather than witnessing it from an outside perspective. So it's a little more, um, like, voyeuristic in a way that makes it, you know, all the more frightening. Yeah, I, I would agree in that sense. Uh, I, I think in general, like, specifically the Arbogast uh, kill. Uh, I, I love that shot so much. And, like, I don't like jump scares. I think jump scares are generally like a cheap way in horror, but it's yeah. so brilliantly shot the way that uh, Norman just comes out, and then we just get that shot of the falling down the falling down the stairs uh, of just Martin Balsam's expression, which mm -hmm. like, that's like ninety percent of what sells that scene is Martin Balsam's expression of. Just, it's the same. Yeah, continue. No, go ahead. Sure. It's the same thing with the shower scene. It's, it's all about the reaction of the face of the person. That's why it's not really just a jump scare. That's the initial, you know, yeah. effect of it. But but this, the the creepy parts is watching this person's face just turn into utter fear. Mm -hmm. What's well, like seventy percent fear, thirty percent just confusion, and that's what Martin Balsam sells alone. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think both kills are like that, where it's mm -hmm. he's just walking up the stairs, looking around a house. A house that, on surface value, is not particularly scary or disturbing. This is not the typical horror house you would see in a horror movie where you walk in and you're like, man, there's a lot of like weapons or bones or something that would kind of give you the impression that you shouldn't be there. He just kind of walks into this very stately old house that very easily could have been in a Rebecca or a Hitchcock movie that does not have uh, an attack. But the same thing happens with the shower scene, which is like, she's just taking a shower and you do really get that confusion of just like, what on earth is happening? Like, obviously there's a horror because you're being attacked, but also just the confusion of like, I never expected in this moment to be attacked. I wasn't scared to start with and then I was attacked. I was just doing something mundane mm -hmm. and then I was attacked. So I had the combined combination of uh, confusion and fear. Yeah, it's kind of like just also just the structure of like, Movies made before that, because that's really what Psycho did so well. And I hope I'm not jumping ahead on anything, but like, no. I think no what Psycho does so well, it kind of invents the the horror genre, and it's brilliant how it kind of alternates from the expected Hitchcock thriller thing. Because if you look at like most Hitchcock thrillers, right? You're not really expecting a high kill count. And if you are, all everything slowly builds until the end. You know, mm. Hitchcock really plays with the expectations of the audience here, not just with the shower scene, but with also Martin Balsam, uh, who you think, oh, okay, now that Marion Crane's gone, that's who we're going to be with. And it's no, now he's gone, and now we're going to be with Lila and Sam. It's kind of brilliant how Hitchcock is basically able to pull the same on us twice and we still fall for it. I, I, 
made a joke for a while that and I tell some of my students too that my ideal movie I'm gonna make when I'm a famous producer is it's gonna just be like a traditional charming romantic comedy and then the last five minutes the apocalypse hits. It's just it's not the movie you thought you were watching until the end. And in a way that you know that's describing how you how Hitchcock is treating this film is the first 50 minutes is a whole different film of what you're expecting. It really is that up to that point, a more traditional Hitchcock person on the run, you know, suspense thriller until a knife starts to hit. It comes out of nowhere. If there's like, if a genius way, I, I don't think they present this way. Everyone knew it was, a, it's called Psycho. But it, they should, a cool way to present it would be to just advertise it as the first 40 minutes of the movie because it really would just come out as a complete shock and a whole different movie, a horror movie, a slasher film that you didn't know that this was going to turn into, which I think is still pretty effective to the day because that first half is still equally engrossing as any, you know, Hitchcock thriller is that once you get pulled out with the knives, it, 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 you know, takes you out of your comfort zone. It really does. They introduced Marion Crane and Sam Lewis at the beginning of the movie as basically, this is our Grace Kelly and Cary Grant. And then Loomis disappears and like goes away out of the story for much for like the next hour and um marion crane goes to a hotel and you think the mystery is going to be are they going to catch up to her is she going to return the money is she going to go back and figure out a way to get her job back and oh it was a mistake like figure something out and then she just gets into dies and then we switch perspective completely to other characters and arbogast is one of them we watch his perspective and he dies and then they kind of pull loomis back in towards the end and what would have traditionally been the reveal of a Hitchcock movie, which is, of course, oh, he's dressing it as, as his mom and his mom is this mummified corpse in the cellar. is really like the third or fourth reveal of the film, which very much falls out of line with like the traditional Hitchcock one, where it's basically something happens. You watch characters figure it out. They get a final reveal. That's the standard like Hitchcock formula. And this just completely plays with it. And it also kind of does what so many horror movies to come would do, which is. I mean, I think Scream is one that, like, Scream at the beginning, where it's like, hey, look, it's Drew Barrymore. Of course she's the star of your movie. She's the famous movie star. And then it's like, nope, she's gone. That's very much in line with the hitch with the psycho tradition um, of just being like, we're going to make you think that this person is our lead, and then we're going to remove them from the story. And Hitchcock does the thing where that nobody does, which is he plays that trick, as you were saying, twice. Nobody replaces their main character twice. Uh, sometimes movies will do it once. But Hitchcock really is kind of he's he's playing on a different level. He is truly a master of this. And this movie is just a really good example of that. I, I think the unexpected part is not just taking away the main character, but also bringing in an antagonist that has nothing to do with the story. Like he has nothing to oh, do yeah. with real lives or everything up to there. He's just living his own story. It's like two separate stories just happen to clash at the wrong time and, and interfere with each other, um, which I feel like has not been done nearly as effective since. Well, that element almost feels like very Cohen-esque. That feels more of like yeah. a Cohen Brothers element. That they, I mean, Hitchcock influenced basically so many of uh, our most beloved filmmakers working to get today, whether they know it or not. Like, mm. uh, kind of, you can find his thumbprint on basically everything. And like, but yeah, that specific element, I do kind of love that. You know, it it is. It switches movies back and forth, basically. And I just love that, basically, with the exception of, like, everything involving Norman Bates, Marion Crane is just unlucky at that point. Like, mm -hmm. she happened to pull into the one... If she doesn't get off the main road, like, if Marion Crane stays on the highway and doesn't go off the main road, 
then she probably doesn't get killed by Norman Bates. And most likely, she and Sam get away with it. Oh, absolutely. It is weird also they changed the protagonist, the, the antagonist from the bosses she stole the money from that are chasing her to this completely different guy. I mean, if she doesn't get pulled, if she doesn't fall asleep at the side of the road and get followed by the police car, mm-hmm. like, she doesn't get off the side road. She doesn't end up the Bates Motel. It's like all this, it's this cascading set of, like, just unlucky stuff for her. In some ways, um, I was thinking about this when I was watching this. Like, you can see the sexism in the film. Like, I don't think if a male character was in the place of Marion Crane and happened to just have a bunch of money, that the cop would have been a suspicious or the the car the car dealer would have been a suspicious. I think it would have been way less suspicious if you just had a male character who just, like, was able to come into a car dealership and spend $700 out of pocket to buy a car. I, I, and I don't think I don't think that a lot of the stuff happens if you just switch the 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 um the side of the car character, which of course like doesn't work as well because um Marion Crane's like place in society due to both her um, gender and then her um, her occupation definitely play a lot in the, uh, the the how the film is instigated. Um, I do think it's important to talk about. We've talked a lot about Norman Bates. And I think it's important to talk about the psychology of Norman Bates. So um, the movie tells us some stuff. I also did a little research. Um, Norman Bates would be described as having dissociative identity disorder. And this is like really important to him as a character, which is dissociative identity disorder often occurs in childhood because of some kind of trauma. They don't specifically say this in the film, but I would um, hypothesize that Norman Bates was sexually abused as a child. And that's one of the reasons he has uh, sort of a weird relationship with his mother. And I think that in some ways caused the dissociative identity disorder. And dissociative identity disorder is uh, commonly manifest with amnesia. So that the two different identities are truly disassociated. So like one thing you see in the film is when he dresses up as the mother and kills, he then cleans up after, but there's not necessarily um awareness that he is cleaning up his own kill like there's there is some separation like when he initially kills marion crane as the mother you then cut to him cleaning up and the way he even talks about it and justifies it is as of he's having to cover for her he's having to break for her. so i think in his mind there truly are two different people his mother does exist he has truly reached the point where his mind has broken and he exists in these two totally separate um disorders um, you get that one thing when he first comes in to clean up after the actual attack, and he is just filled with this horrified look when he comes into the shower. Yeah, he Norman does not have any belief that anything happened. That is his in his legitimate mind, nothing has happened yet. He does he is not aware, and I think that's one of the brilliant things that Hitchcock uses because we as the audience believe oh well then we basically rule out the possibility of norman being the one to do the killing because he when he is alone and has no reason to is shocked by the killing absolutely i think the brilliance of perkins performance is like during that like cleanup process you said the initial shock but also there's this kind of this like dutifulness to the way he cleans it. Like he, he, it doesn't seem like pleasurable. He's cleaning up his own actions, but like he's trying to help out his mom. It's his duty to save it. It'd be so thorough. And just in like snippets, you can see the other person like slip out. He, uh, as the car starts to, you know, go down into the mud, he just gives it a like half, 
bit of a smile perks up. It's just like the other half of his personality is coming out. Um, it's just the perfect um, expression that he brings out a couple of times within the film. And you can see him trying to like repress it in a way too. And the other, you know, his actual true Norman Bates self is conflicting with the mom and him, you know, at all times in that scene. He's definitely horrified by her behavior. And I think he feels guilty because he knows one of the reasons that the mom persona has killed is that he was attracted to Marion. And there was, I think, I think this is the reason I do really believe he was sexually abused as a child by his mother is that he seems to feel guilt if he is attracted to another woman. And then he, in his mind, believes that his mom will be angry about that. And this of course ties back into how he got rid of his mother and her lover. And I think the jealousy that existed when he saw, um, them together and then uh, ended up poisoning them so instead like he it's such a weird twisted um like mess of psychosis and like um just craziness in there where he is feels guilty for being attracted to the woman because his mom will hate it but he's also mad at his mom for being with this other person in front of him and getting rid of them. But he feels guilt for removing his mom. So then his mind has split to the point where he now believes he has two different personas himself and his mother that are coexisting. And so he has to then attack as his mother, clean up as himself. But those two personalities he has are interacting, even though he's not cognizant and aware that they are interacting. So it is in some ways, one of the more complex movies from a psycho psychological perspective. Um, you just see like the, just the layers on layers on layers of just how the, his mind was broken and warped and twisted by his um, his diagnosis. And I think that, you know, works with the suspense of the movie as well, because it makes the way that Norman Bates, you know, interacts with everyone else, it makes it reasonable. Like he's not hiding his psychosis. He's just because to be a true self. He is, you know, charming in kind of way and a little soft spoken and a little hard. He doesn't seem like a killer because in a way he, he's not a killer. It's the mom inside him that's the killer. So he's, it's, um, you know, making it seem not out of nowhere, but unexpected. Which adds to the shock because just like how can this guy, you know, come and kill him? Because he, it, I, I find his performance, you know, extremely charming. Because I think the awkward nervousness is charming. He's the only person. Because honestly, the taxidermy part, we know to be creeped out because we kind of know what to expect from a movie called Psycho. Slash, this movie has a history, so we kind of know where it's going. But like you can understand from Marion's perspective that that taxidermy is not creepy. If the character and the actor is able to pull off that head talking about his hobby of killing animals um, while he's talking is not creepy, it really gives a lot to the way he's delivering that performance and, and kind of making people around him feel comfortable in a way. And he says that at one point. He's like, I don't know what it is, but people just see me always think I'm telling the truth. He just has a way of, of you know putting people's guard down um, until the other personality just clashes so heavily with it. Well, he almost he seems so pathetic when he's Norman. He just seems mm. incredibly like pathetic and awkward and you feel sorry for him. You genuinely want him yeah. to be in a better situation than he is. And I, I think he, he garners sympathy. Yeah. He also does like, I think we're also, you're, you're right. He is treated as pathetic by the movie. Like he's this voyeuristic guy who's pulling pictures down to stare at this girl. He seems so like impotent and weak 
even like I, both emotionally but physically that I think that the movie almost lulls you into the sense of false security where you think oh he's just so pathetic and weird and oh his mom is so terrible to him and like oh you kind of feel sorry for him but also think he's a weirdo so you don't he's never he never comes off as threatening so you never really feel like oh well this guy might suddenly erupt into a bout of violence and I think this is like classic Hitchcock like Hitchcock really idolizes classic masculinity he likes his men to stay stand up straight have neat hair be charming talk with bravura hand you know handle the situation even when they don't know what's going on and that's what um mr handsome that's once again that's the character's name um you know he plays that role he is that classic kind of hitchcock you know hero in a way that's his job be handsome save the day um and anthony perkins is you know the the beta male in this situation. He's the opposite of every male character that Hitchcock has put into his movies. Someone a little more sensitive, you know, a little more uncomfortable, um, has a different you know, positioning to him and, and stance. He's a little more slouched. Um, it, he he is a complete clash with every um, male that you know Hitchcock has idolized and thinks is what they should be that he has put through film. Well, it's the classic Hitchcock um, admirant of uh, Sigmund Freud and. Sam Loomis is the guy who is sexually prolific and yeah. capable and seems to know what he's doing. And Norman's kind of the weird, creepy dude staring through a picture doing a hold. And like that sexual either ex ability to express your sexuality normally versus repression is just kind of like the base level. Like he's, you know, normal and living his best life. And Norman is kind of the weird dude who's staring through the wall. You know, to kind of this to a film that I think would take a lot of inspiration but would also alternate it a bit. If you look at it, Norman is the Randy and Sam is the Billy in a sense of scream, right? Mm -hmm. Norman is kind of, he's the loser, whereas Sam is like the, the cooler one. And ultimately, Cream kind of does the twist on it where Billy Loomis ends up being the killer and Randy is more one of the good guys and they reverse it. But ultimately, like, you can also notice, like, other little things. Like, you could kind of view uh, Lil or Lila Crane as uh, the Sydney Prescott and mm -hmm. Marion Crane, of course, as the Casey Becker from Barrymore's character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think this this is just, like, this movie is so, so dominant in terms of any kind of mystery thriller, slasher, horror film. I mean, it's so hard to ignore the comparisons to Halloween. You not only have the daughter of the star of this film playing the main character in Halloween, you have kind of the classic, um, you know, we haven't talked about it yet, but Psycho is so dependent on the Bernard Herrmann score. Halloween is so dependent on the John Carpenter score. It drives so much of the suspense, so much of the intrigue, and so much of the fright is from the noise of the film. Um, it's just, you know, I, people really, I think even if they're not trying to, everyone ends up copying Hitchcock because everyone since Hitchcock has made movies has copied Hitchcock. So you may think you're copying another director. And in fact, you're really just copying Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Hitchcock, I think it's kind of like the, the Simpsons did it fallacy that, <laughs> uh, you know, South Park and family guy. Of, oh, well, Simpsons already did it. Uh, Hitchcock's basically kind of done everything interesting in terms of direction. He kind of had his thumb everywhere. Oh, absolutely. I just want to make a comparison between Halloween and um, Psycho as well. What movie are we watching? I almost said Virgo. Yeah. 
um, is is the way Halloween you know propels the slasher genre forward is that it becomes a lot more about the kills. There's a lot more kills in Halloween. It's really the focus of the movie. The plot, the story, the characters are are much more minimal. Where Psycho, I even like I watched my wife watched the second half. I was like, don't worry, there's only like two scary parts. She hates scary parts. Like there's really only two kills and then it kind of a suspenseful ending that it's so much more patient to build up the atmosphere, but also build up and understand the characters. This movie has like two 10 plus minute conversation scenes. I'm exaggerating, mm-hmm. but a lot there was that scene lengthy when you're watching it with uh, Marion and, and Norman talking. Mo, um, I think sharing a cup of tea or something together. And then the, yeah, the which is- uh, then the investi- then the investigation um, of Abergaste and and Bates also kind of goes along for investigation, and you just don't get those kind of dialogue back and forth to kind of live in that moment, live in that interaction. That in any more slasher slasher films move past that. It's about slashing. Although Hitchcock, although Halloween does the Hitchcock thing of it focuses on the victim rather than the killer. You yeah. always see that. You always see it is the person being attacked rather than the attacker outside of the original um the, the first kill um i do think there is some really cool dialogue i love when marion is taking the money and she's leaving and the way that they do uh they kind of like give you information about what everybody else is feeling by having the conversations happen over her face as she's driving so you get to hear the people she's working for and the money disappearing and then trying to call her sister and like trying to communicate and all that stuff happening like as a voiceover while she's just driving and you can watch her face. I think that's just a really effective way to um, really quickly catch people up on the events of the movie without having to go back and have a scene where you see her boss and the guy who'd given her the money, like talk about the money. Like I think doing it in the way Hitchcock does is just so much more inventive and so much more engaging than a bunch of like small sequences in other locations would have been. Um, uh, the Bates Motel is a really cool location. Um, it's very weird because they call it a motel, but what it really is, is like a series of like sort of connected cabins and then like a big house in the hill. It's just such an interesting, um, location. You get kind of the very close proximity we commonly relate these structures with like voyeuristic behavior where it is very common in movies to, they go to a bunch of interconnected cabins and at some point one character is looking through a hole or has a picture covering over it. You even see this like cabin of the woods and stuff like going up to the present day where like these, these areas commonly have um, like a voyeuristic tendency. And then you just have the really weird manor house on the hill, which is really kind of cool because they do all the stuff with shadow in the window where you think that the, you legitimately think for a large percentage of this movie, up until basically they talk to the sheriff at the church, you think that Mrs. Bates is still alive because you've seen these really cool shadow demonstrations in the window. Like you think that character, and even in really until um, Lila finds the uh, the corpse at the end, you could be very easily convinced. Like they almost keep that reveal to like the very end. And it's just such an effective use of um, the surrounding area and the scenery and the location that really plays into the movie. And what I love is that it's a surprising twist, but they never lie to you. You Mm -hmm. never feel cheated. It's a completely well-earned twist because you realize, oh, everything adds up. Like Mm -hmm. 
rewarding watching it knowing the twist already because you can see how you were tricked. It's like watching a magician show you how the trick. There's nothing where like it just feels like, oh, thought it was this. Well, we told you it was this. Haha, ha, surprise April Fools, it's actually this. Like, no, there are assumptions that you make based mm -hmm. on what you see. But that's you making false judgments. That's your fault. I think in some ways it's like Hitchcock punishing people for thinking he's a bad filmmaker because when they show him talking to the mom, um, there is like things you could be like that, that's not even moving. Like this is bad filmmaking. Like the mom's not moving. It seems so still. Like it's it's not a real shadow, and then it's not moving. That's the point. She was just a corpse sitting there, and. I feel like there's a couple of things like that that you excuse as like just not great filmmaking for the time or like the effects aren't there, but really it makes sense with how the plot reveals itself. Well, they never show you the face of the mom until the yeah. end. They really never show you in profile. You always see like the attack on Arbogast is basically just you see an arm, you see an arm when she attacks Marin in the shower. Like even the voice of the mom that's supposedly yelling at him for having the woman there is very weird. Like it doesn't sound like a human voice. Like it sounds fake. So you could, you could like very easily when you get to the end of the movie, look back and go, yeah, that didn't really sound like the mom's voice. Why would the mom sound like that? You're right. It really does set it up in like a really intelligent way. So you don't have the, you know, there's a lot of movies, especially got into the two thousands and the 2010s where it's like, you get to the end and they do a reveal and it's like, that doesn't make any sense. Like you go back to the movie and you're like, I can prove that your twist doesn't work because you failed to set it up correctly here and here and here. And Hitchcock, just the ultimate perfectionist, um, maybe besides Kubrick, just uh, he doesn't let that happen. He has to set up everything perfectly. So it all ties back at the end. Um, gentlemen, any uh, final thoughts on the film? Uh, Psycho? Boatman, any final thoughts? Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I think just, Watching this film, I it's so brilliant how many little touches that Hitchcock puts on this. Like, we've talked about the structure and everything, but just there are so many little things. Like, I think my favorite just little shot is the very final shot of Marion's car being pulled out of the swamp. Because it's oh, yeah. ugly and grotesque, and you're just filled with this sense of ick. You just, it, it's such a perfect little ending cap on everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so many good moments. Zach Ford, any final thoughts on Psycho? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, along with many classic films, this one that's been like so parodied and like you have maybe have never seen it, but you pretty much feel like you know what Psycho is doing. And I would say there is still a lot of surprises for the movie to have. It, it was, you know, narratively, like we talked about, or tonally, that it definitely, you know, holds up past its, you know, parody. It's more than just the shower scene that's got known for. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so we need we need to remember how great Psycho is. Absolutely, like it's it counted because of that. I feel like people, you know, it's still treated as major Hitchcock, but people will talk about Vertigo or Rendo, you know, as a true masterpieces anymore. So I think Psycho, like parodies, have kind of killed it unfairly. I yeah, I think I think one thing I would say to everyone uh, listening, and if you know anybody that hasn't watched Psycho, I just you know I hope you would encourage them one to watch it, but also to watch it with the context in mind that this movie is the thing that every other movie they've seen that is more recent 
is trying to copy, is trying to be. So this movie, I think it's really important to remember when we watch classic films, because of course we're watching a movie from 1960 and 2020. This was 60 years ago. Um, I think it's, I think it's easy to get stuck in the trap where you watch this movie and you go, I've already seen this in all these new movies. And you start talking about all the new movies you've seen this stuff in without giving it it's just due as this is the movie that created in genres and created these ideas and the structure and the way of making films that we see today. And I think it is really important to go back to that first movie, the movie that kind of pioneered the idea so that you can really understand what is happening today and why we're making movies that we are making. Like, I don't think you can understand Halloween or Scream without understanding where Psycho came from. And then you see the progression. I think that the progression is really valuable to watch. So go out and go watch Psycho and then Halloween and then Scream and watch the progression progression of an entire genre. I think it's a really, really valuable um, experience. And I think uh, you as a movie fan will be more well-rounded and more educated after it. In summary, next time you watch All About Steve, remember how much it owes to Psycho and Hitchcock. <laughs> uh, with that, I think we have ended our discussion of Psycho, but let us take a quick uh, discussion of the 1960s and Hitchcock run. So this is a decade where Hitchcock um, starts to have some health problems. We talked uh, a couple weeks ago about the 40s, and I was making at least one movie every year in the 1960s. Uh, Hitchcock would only make five films. He would make Psycho in 1960, The Birds in 1963, Marnie in 1964, Torn Curtain in 1966, and Topaz in 1969. So this is a much lower output. And I have to admit, I have not seen Torn Curtain and Topaz, but in my mind, this is sort of a, you're watching Hitchcock diminish a little bit. I do think after Psycho, you're starting to get a little bit of the, unfortunately, Hitchcock was not as healthy as he used to be. He was not as able to make these movies. And I think this is in some ways kind of progressing towards the final the, the final end of his career. Um, the Birds is very good. I am not a Marnie fan. I know there are some really big Marnie fans. I um, would not count myself among them. Um, Caleb, what have you seen from this decade of Alfred Hitchcock? And um, do you have any thoughts on these movies? I've only seen Psycho and The Birds, so I don't have like a full grasp on like 60s Alfred Hitchcock. But the one thing I will say is it feels almost as if as Hitchcock got into the 60s, he the stuff that he did make, I think and I think Psycho had a big effect on it because Psycho was such like a box office success and a big draw. He kind mm -hmm. of became more like more invested in spectacle. As he went into the 60s, like very big films, like The Birds, I don't love, but it's mm. very much, it's this creature feature, it's this very like kind of larger than life spectacle. And I do think the fact that it is more of a spectacle, spectacle loses a little bit of those more like interesting Hitchcock elements. Um, mm. I would also make like, besides Marty, uh, Torn Curtain and Topaz, if I'm not mistaken, are both like Cold War thrillers. So, like, more kind of culturally accessible he wasn't really after psycho he didn't really in the 60s do anything on like the level of like a rear window or like a vertigo where he just kind of did something completely different structurally like a psycho after psycho like he didn't kind of shake it up he more kind of just tried to stay the course mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Zach, what do you think about this decade? Yeah, I think in a way, Hollywood started to get a ahead of Hitchcock. 
And he was just doing his best to keep up because, as he said, he was doing these grand spectacles because that's really when, you know, the early 60s was trying to do these big epic scale, you know, pushing off like Ben-Hur and biblical epics. And you're trying to make it a spectacle to get people to come to the theaters. And then, you know, we'll talk about some of these uh, next week, but trying to, you know, keep up with the new Hollywood, he definitely gets a lot weirder, you know, late 60s, late um, and early 70s um, to try to be, you know, a little more experimental in ways to keep up with. And it's just kind of outside his comfort zone. Um, I have seen Torn Curtain. I think that one does have quite a bit of old school Hitchcock vibes. Uh, I would say the plot is um, so much less tight than we're used to for Hitchcock. Um, and I think that is part of him trying to keep up with where, you know, movies were coming, especially inspired by, you know, French cinema. But I also, I vibe with it because it's just like an escape. It's an escape drama of people trying to get out of the, you know, corridor country. Um, and I, I, I tend to just like the, that genre of movies. So I recommend it, but it's definitely definitely lesser Hitchcock. This does feel like the decade where after Psycho in 1960, he really does cede this director to other directors to be like the person of the decade. Like the 1960s, I don't think most people would argue for Hitchcock as the director of the 1960s. He's probably in very good running for the director of the 1950s or the 1940s. Those are like the direct the, the decades where he is really prolific and making some of the best movies of all time. After Psycho, you can definitely see not only does he just make less movies, like it's really hard to go back before this and look at Alfred Hitchcock's career and go, there's the two to three year gap between movies. He just doesn't do that. And this decade, you really see that like, I don't think Hitchcock meant like physically was just capable of continuing the breakneck pace he had set with previous uh, decades. Yeah, he's getting really ready to pass the torch because in the late 60s, like Brian De Palma comes and he is like, you know, Hitchcock, I'll take it and take it into the next generation and, you know, make it weirder and um, kinkier in a way. Moving even forward, like Kubrick but, takes over. Yeah. And, well, so even Spielberg with Jaws, like my favorite story is uh, Spielberg really wanted to meet Hitchcock and Hitchcock turned him down and Hitchcock later explained why. And it was because he was so embarrassed because at that point, the Jaws ride was already a thing. And Alfred Hitchcock voiced the, did the voice for like the Jaws ride. And he was so embarrassed if Spielberg knew and he didn't want to have to face him. Wow. I did not know that. That is um, a really fascinating reason to uh, not agree to meet somebody. But uh, I guess it sort of makes sense with the, you know, Alfred Hitchcock was a, a pretty uh, a pretty prideful person. I think he was very proud of his uh, his craft and probably would not have wanted to just be the, the voice of a ride for somebody else. Yeah. Um, I think that ends our discussion of the 1960s Alfred Hitchcock run. Personally, definitely a lot less to talk about than some of the previous decades. He just makes a lot less. Um, I would like to thank Cable Boatman for being an absolutely wonderful guest on today's episode. We would absolutely love to have you back again if we can find another film that you are as passionate about as you are, uh, Psycho. Hey, yeah, what's your thoughts on Benjamin Button? Zach <laughs> is going to read the episode. Uh, yeah, no, uh, I love the episode. You can make my solo backwards pod, um, you know, two-person pod if you want to. Uh, just you, no, here's what we do. Uh, the episode starts with just you and Lucas and slowly I just come in and chime in and then you just leave. And then it's just me and Lucas. <laughs> I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk about Benjamin Button. Though. 
I don't either. I don't want to, especially, honestly, here's the real thing. I don't want to have to rewatch Benjamin Button because that is a very long movie that I did I not find particularly don't engaging. Don't want to touch, talk Benjamin Button with me, like someone who loves it and maybe can, you know, provide some insight and give you a new new perspective exactly. to see Benjamin Button through. A Benjamin Button podcast with you would be, you'd be going, here's this thing I love, and me going, yeah, I don't see it. Yeah, if, you wanted to have, if you wanted to have Caleb be the second person <laughs> saying, yeah, I don't see it on the episode. That's called being closed-minded and not you know, open to having beauty into your heart. All right. We will find a better episode for Caleb Boatman than um, Benjamin Pan. Boatman, which is not. We'll only, see you on the Pan only. episode. Zach is pitching some ideas, and they're getting overruled um, by the shareholders in the podcast. We don't have any shareholders. We're, we're a real company. Um, but I would like to thank Caleb Boatman again. He was fantastic. Um, uh if you go down in the description, you will find his details if you would like to follow him and um, see his various takes on movies. Um, but let me just say, uh, next week we'll be coming back with our 1970s Alfred Hitchcock run. It's only two movies. It should not be very long. We're going to talk Family Plot, which is Alfred Hitchcock's final film. But we will see you next. We will see with that. We will see you with that next week. Uh, I have been Lucas. That's Zach. That's Caleb. Um, and yeah, Family Plot next week. Get ready.